It's just awesome. So, first session, warhorse, donkeys. Second session, blood, water, hope, suffering, Bethesda. Third session, resurrection and its implications for us today. What does that mean for us now? The old guy's not here. He's not here. Be resurrection, not just believe in it. Um, last session, I want to talk to you about the Holy Spirit. I, I struggled with the Holy Spirit, not because I struggled with the Holy Spirit, because I struggled putting language on the Holy Spirit. I, I struggled putting language around it so people would get it. But, but in the last year, I really believe God's given me a, an unction to put some language around these things. Um, and they're in two brand new series back there. One's called Show Then Tell. It's, it's about the empowerment of the Holy Spirit and how we are meant to be demonstrators before we announce. And, and, the, and the second one is a series I did on prayer. And they're on the right side back there. And, and what happened was is um, me, uh, my sermon writing team and I, my research team and I, we just had a flood of creative ideas about helping people. It doesn't matter if something's true. If you can't find language to describe it, it makes it very difficult. And so my attempt in this last session is to try to help us understand the history of the idea of the something called anointing. It's a word that, we, that, that gets thrown around um, a, a, whole, a whole heap. And so um, but I want to put some language around it to, to try to help us explain and ultimately what it would give us something to wrestle with for us now. In, in 1 John chapter 2, um, if... If um yeah if you could if you get that ready in First John chapter two this is um uh, if this is true if John is telling the truth here it's actually terrifying I mean, just let's watch this I'm writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray now now the word astray there is the Greek word planao which is where we get planet from. And to them, planets were not organized things in solar systems. Planets were wandering bodies. They just wandered around. So they used the word planao or planet to describe it when you're, wonder, when you're wandering aimlessly into nothingness. Okay, that's planao. And the, and the astray that he's talking about here historically was, was that there was a group of people who were trying to revert back to an old system and that old system said that you had to be special for God's Spirit to rest on you. And Jesus insisted that God's Spirit rested on common people. He called common people salt and light. He said things like, you're the light of the world. You're the salt of the earth. And then the next sentence, do not, do not think I've come to abolish the Torah. Well, that's weird. Hey, by the way, you're salt and you're light. And I don't want you to think that abolishes the scriptures. It actually fulfills it. Now, what about that statement would make them think they were abolishing scripture? Well, the common teaching of the day was, was that only special elite people could be used by God as salt and light. So for Jesus to tell common everyday people, you're the salt of the earth, you're the light of the world. For him today tell common everyday people that, that was heresy in that day. He, he, it would have been, he, he's having to defend himself. You're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. Do not think that that abolishes scripture. It doesn't. It's actually what God was trying to accomplish all along. Now that took a long time to take hold. I mean, so, so by 65 AD, when John's writing this, there was a group of people trying to lead them planao by saying, nope, 
If you don't have the right credentials, you don't have the Holy Spirit. And John is insisting that that is a bad idea, that we need to hold to that. And actually, the elitist, the elitist look at the Spirit of God actually um, won out for a very, very long time until a guy named Martin Luther came along and started really insisting that we think everybody can be used by God. So it took a long time for that thing to take hold, but Jesus originated it. Watch what he says. As for you, the anointing, so there's that idea of anointing. Anointing of what? What is anointing? The anointing you received from him remains in you, but you do not need anyone, to, and you do not need anyone to teach you. In other words, now it, 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 this is not a, um, a pronouncement of death to all teachers. He's simply saying the idea that you can't learn for yourself, that you have to have some elite person tell you what to do, that is not true because you have the Spirit of God in you. Now watch this. But as his anointing teaches you, so evidently this anointing is received, and then evidently this anointing takes on some sort of personification that can do something called teaching. So evidently this anointing is received, but then it also teaches something. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and evidently this anointing, its knowledge base is broad, teaches you about all things, as that anointing is real and not counterfeit, just as it has taught you remain in him. Now, that, that, that is quite terrifying. If, if what John is saying is true, and I believe it is, what he's saying is, is that I am not absolved from my responsibility to participate with the anointing and spirit of God to fix the world just because I see myself as average. That, that if, if a church buys into the planao, the astray, this is what it looks like. Dave, you're the pastor. You should do it. You're the leader. You should do it. I'm absolved from my responsibility to participate with the anointing to bring heaven to every place I see hell here because I've got issues. What Jesus insisted was, was that if you're an average, ordinary, everyday person, you can carry the spirit of God the same as the special people. That was, the re- that was part of the revolution of Jesus. So I think it might help us to trace the history of this idea of anointing. Because to understand what John's saying without understanding where those people were in that day is very, very difficult. The first idea of anointing, you see, happens in in Exodus 25. So so you see this idea uh, about the history of the anointing. So the question I want to ask at first is, where does God live? And actually, we could trace it back before here, but just for time's sake, I skip forward to here. But, but before here, God, before Exodus and all that was written, to them, God lived in the sky. Abraham would have called God the great sky God. Abraham gets a revelation, his name's El Shaddai. But El Shaddai lived in the air somewhere. Remember that movie Noah that came out and Christians were going crazy. Like, oh my gosh, because it's so compelling to be against everything. Right? And one of the problems Christians say, I, I asked a Christian, he said, you know, think about it. piece of garbage movie Noah, you think about it, you know? And I said, well, what was your problem with it, you know? And he said, he said, they don't even call him God. Don't even use the word God in it. They called him great creator. I was like, does it help you to know that the English word God was derived from the German deity Gott in the early 1400s? There was no word for God in Noah's day. That's actually historically accurate. He would have been called, oh, great sky God or, 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 or great creator. They were actually being historically accurate. <laughs> As if everybody always thought his name was God. 
And God's actually not his name. It's just a title. And there's just a gaping hole. I could drive a garbage truck through your argument. But just enjoy the movie, you know. So, so, there, there, so God lived in the sky. But then Moses comes along and, and he gets this idea that God doesn't just live in the sky. God lives, God lives closer in a tabernacle or a temple. In Exodus 25, verse 8, it says, Then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I'll dwell amongst them. So in Exodus, if the question was asked, where does God live? Before Exodus, where does God live? He lives in the sky, up in the sky. But in Exodus 25, where does God live? Oh, he lives, he lives in the sanctuary we built. So we were able to build a dwelling place that God, and the idea was that God doesn't doesn't just live in a dwelling place. God is trying to move people from revelation to revelation about what he's really like. And to move God from in the sky to in a tent in the middle of camp is a good move. It's not the final word of God. It is a word from God, but it's not the last word. The last word is the risen Christ. But, but, but that's a good move. So there, there was this anointing. In Exodus 25, where did God live? He lives in this, oh, he's in that sanctuary. He's in that place there. And you see this all the way in Jesus' day when the lady at the well says, hey, um, everybody says we got to go all the way to Mount Moriah to worship because that's where the temple is. But I live on Mount Gerizim. Can I just worship here? Because that's a long flip and walk, right? And Jesus is like, hey, what year is this? Have you, have you not realized that you can worship God anywhere because God is spirit, like, which, is, which is an idea that really took on, which is why we can experience the presence of God right here in Hastings because you don't, there's nothing in us now that thinks we ought to get on a plane to go to a holy place to experience God. You know that you can experience God here. But in a primitive world, God was there, just there. But then next you see it, um, next slide, you see him um, with the priests, Exodus 28, after you put these clothes on your brother Aaron and his sons, anoint, there's that word anoint, anoint and ordain them, consecrate them so that they may serve me as priests. So in the ancient world, God moved from living in the sky to living in a tent or a temple, and then he moved to living on certain priests. So he was in certain places and on certain very special people. You see it again with with another place with the kings. Next slide. So with the kings, let's let's read the passage next. Uh, So he sent for him and had him brought in, and he was glowing with health and had fine appearance and handsome features. And then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. Rise and anoint. There's There's that idea of anoint again. Rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came on him powerfully. So, so in, the, in the primitive world, God lived in the sky or he lived in a temple, a special place, or with special people, namely priests, certain prophets, and kings. So prophets, priests, kings, temple. That doesn't sound like a large percentage of the populace. Certain priests, certain kings. Normally there was one high priest, one king, one prophet per era. So you got three people carrying all of the anointing God has to offer. And then it all gets put into one place. That was the primitive world. Then what you see in Jesus is something, uh, uh, something along those lines. It, it says that, that God lived with the Christ. Watch this in, um, in Luke chapter 4. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me. The word anointed is creo, which is where we get the word Christ from. Christ is just Jesus the anointed one. The one, the one carrying the Spirit. 
the, the chosen one. He's anointed me or creoed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind and set their press free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So what you see in the Bible is you see Abraham serving a God in the sky and then later Moses saying, no, let's build a sanctuary and have God live in a tent in the middle of camp. And then David coming along later and building him a temple and then Jesus coming along and living amongst us. So, so one of the things you see in the Bible is this dynamic progressive revelation of where God lived, that he, he goes from up to a tent to a temple to in flesh. One writer said it this way, and the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us so we could see it. So what you see in scripture is God getting closer. As, as, as people's consciousness of God move forward, what you see is the concept being, oh God in the sky, to oh God in the temple, to oh God in our priest, to oh God in our king, to oh God in our prophet, to oh God in the flesh. He is the, the Christ, the creo. He has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. And so you see this thing. And then the fifth thing you see is with us. You see it with us. This is John 22. Jesus says it this way. And again, Jesus said, peace be with you as the Father has sent me. Now I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them. The word breathe there is the word inspire. He inspired them. He breathed on them. And he said, receive the Holy Spirit. Receive the Holy Spirit. So what you see at the end of Jesus' life is you see Jesus promising and delivering the Holy Spirit to a very large group of people. Now, in Jesus' day, this was called heresy. Everybody knows that the Spirit of God lives in that temple and on certain priests, certain prophets, certain kings. But this Christ, the one that, that, that Jesus had this divine life, is now saying that the Holy Spirit is as free as water to anybody who wants it. Absolutely unthinkable. So where was God living? Well, in the ancient world, he lived in the sky, or then a mountain, or then on certain priests, on certain kings, on certain prophets, um, and then, and, and then on, on the Christ. And then the Christ seems to say, well, no, 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 no. When, when I go away, the Holy Spirit's going to live in all of us. It was a massive. To us, we take it for granted. Oh, yeah, the Holy Spirit's here. In, this, in John's world, that was unthinkable. For the Holy Spirit, not, for you not to have to go to Mount Moriah to experience the Holy Spirit of God was a brand spanking new idea. So here's the question. That's where God lives. So the question then is, if he's going to be in all of us, what exactly is he doing? I mean, to hand, it, would be like, it would be like handing me the keys to a V12 Ferrari. When you, get, when you get the access to power that you have no idea what to do with it, it's a dangerous thing. When you don't have the skill to deal with it, it's a dangerous thing. So, so Jesus has a lot to say about when the Spirit comes, here's what I want you to keep in mind. I want you to have the skills to utilize the power I operate in. And he, and he says it this basically in John 14, 25 and 26. He says, the Spirit will teach and remind us. He says, all this I've spoken while still with you. But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things. 
and will remind you of everything I've said to you, which is quite a relief. Remember, in Jesus' day, there wasn't a file folder of MP3s to go back and check what he said over and over again. There was no thought that there'd ever be a printing press. The idea of each, you, you realize right now, we're sitting in a room where every single person has their own copy of a Bible. Do you realize that's really a less than 100-year-old phenomenon? I mean, if you're, if you're old enough, and there'd be people old enough to remember this. Do, do, do you remember being old enough to remember the family Bible? Where every family had to share their own Bible. And remember, that thing was huge. Remember? There, that, was, that was just, that was within some of, some of our lifetimes. I remember my grandmother having that. And, and, and you know what, you know, that, that would have been, the, the idea that each family would have their own Bible, unthinkable in Jesus' day. The idea was, is how are we going to ever remember what you taught us? And Jesus says, part of the Holy Spirit's job is going to be to remind you of what I've said, how to live. It's going to remind you. you. You know what later writers called the Holy Spirit? They called the Holy Spirit the sword. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Which, by the way, that's not talking about the Bible. The Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. That is not talking about the Bible. The Bible is not a sword. It doesn't call itself a sword. When a New Testament writer said, and the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, is it talking about the Bible? No, the Bible didn't exist. It didn't exist to 300 years later. And it tells you in the next line, for it is to Him that we must all give account. And it is to Him that no creation is hidden from His sight. And when the New Testament talks about the Word of God, it's talking about the Spirit of the risen Christ left with His followers to act as a sword on the inside to remind us all of what He taught us how to live. It was a moral deterrent for our insides. John, that's John 14, um, 25. Uh, so the Spirit teaches and reminds. Two, the Spirit gives witness to what Christ is up to in the world. I want you to notice a witness cannot create evidence, but is bound to respond to the evidence that already exists. When the advocate comes, an advocate, that was a, uh, that was a first century legal uh, uh, court term. It was a, it, essentially, it was the public defender. The advocate was the guy standing, talking to the judge on the guilty person's behalf. The guilty person shuts up. The, ad, the, advocate, does not, the advocate does not talk to the guilty person. The advocate talks to the judge. And, and, the, and the whole courtroom is rigged because the judge is actually on the side of the guilty person the whole time. It says, when the advocate comes, who I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who goes out from the Father, he'll testify about me. In other words, he'll bring to your mind what it is that Christ is up to. When, when, you, when you see things in the world, and the question is, is the Spirit of Christ at work here? Our tendency is to instantly go to the Bible. Was it in the Bible? Like I, I, was, I looked at a church's website the other day, and I clicked the, I clicked the whole what we're about thing because I was fixing to be there, and it's very important for me to know what they're about before I get there, Right? And in the what we're about thing, this is what the pastor wrote. And I think he thought he was being clever, but oh my goodness, please don't ever do this. It said, uh, he said, what we're about is the Bible. If it's in the Bible, we do it. If it's not in the Bible, we try not to. That simple. So you're into shaving women's heads and clipping their nails and making them marry women they don't love. And you're into killing people who disagree with their priest. And none of you shave the side of your face. And you don't wear mixed clothes. And um, in Galatians 5.12, it says, I hope you all castrate yourself. I hope you enjoy that one. Um, so, so oftentimes, oftentimes what we do, 
is when we, see, when we see God doing something in the world, our question is, is that the spirit of Christ at work or not? And our tendency is to make a doctrinal debate about it. But that's actually what it should, even if just, because what happens is, is when it becomes a doctrinal debate, we limit the work of the spirit to something we can understand. And so when we see something we can't understand, then we automatically label it as that's not God. But the question, and then we say, why isn't it God? Well, it's not in the Bible. Well, just because it's not in the Bible doesn't mean the spirit of Christ isn't at work. And it's the witness of the Holy Spirit that allows us to go, wait a minute, I don't know where this is in the Bible or whether it's in the Bible, whether it's not in the Bible, but I know that the Spirit of Christ is at work in this. I see people motivated to be kinder and more compassionate and giving their life to the poor and the afflicted. Even if you don't have language for it, there is the Spirit of Christ is at work in somebody. It's a very famous actor in America who recently sold everything he has in Beverly Hills and he moved to Haiti and he gave it all to them. And he, and he moved there and he lives amongst them. And he's dedicated the rest of his life to making their life better. And he only acts every now and then now to make enough money to go back to Haiti to make their life better. And he's an A-list actor. And they asked him, they said, what compelled you to do this? He said, I don't know if I could put words on it, but something in my heart told me I have to give the rest of my life to the poor and afflicted and making their life better. Now, whether he could put language around that or not, how many spirits in the world can compel someone to do that? You know, whether he, whether he goes to the Bible or not, that's, that's the spirit of Christ working in somebody. The spirit will give witness to what he's up to in the world. Number three, the spirit convinces us to, to agree that we are sinful, that Christ is enough despite our failure, and that there's hope for where the world's going. Let me, let me read that because that's all in one passage. Let me read that again. The Spirit convinces you to agree that you're sinful, that Christ is enough despite our failure, and that there's hope for where the world's going. Here's how Jesus said it. When he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin, righteousness, and judgment. Now, the word world there is the word cosmos. It literally means the order of things. So when he comes, he will prove that the current order of things will be in the wrong about sin, righteousness, and judgment. About sin, because people do not believe in me. So evidently, the Holy Spirit's goal, the, the word convict, the word convict, or in this translation, prove, means to convince. So evidently, the Holy Spirit is about convincing unbelievers that they're sinners. Because if we just agree that we're sinners, God's faithfulness takes over the rest of the way. But he convicts righteous people that they're righteous. Evidently, he doesn't stop at convicting of sin. If you're here tonight and you're in Jesus Christ, for you to say the Holy Spirit convicted me of sin, likely not. What he's likely more convicting you of is he's convicting you that you're righteous and challenging you to live that way. He doesn't tell you what you're not. He tells you what you are. If you're in Jesus Christ and you got this voice in your head saying, you're a sinner, you're a sinner, you're a sinner, that's likely not the shepherd. That's likely the butcher. About sin, because people do not believe in me. About righteousness, because I'm going to the Father where you can see me no longer. In other words, there's going to be times where you're going to fail, and you're going to need the Holy Spirit to remind you that despite your failures, Christ is enough. Christ is enough. And watch what he says in the last one. And about judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. So when Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit convincing us of judgment, who's he talking about? The prince of this world. 
He's talking about the oppressor. He's talking about the Hasetan. He's, he's talking about how because I'm fixing to rise from the dead and I'm going to go away, the world's going to steadily get better. And the, and, and the guy running the, the current order of things, he knows he's defeated already. So what you need to know is you need to know that the Holy Spirit is in the work of convincing people that they are sinful because you know what? They need to, they need to come to that conclusion so that God's faithfulness can take the rest of the way. But for people who've come to that conclusion, he's steadily reminding you that you're righteous despite your failures. Christ is enough. And for all of us, he is convinced convincing us that this world has hope. This world story, the story of this world is not over yet. It is not done. There's more to this world story. There's hope because the prince of this world is already condemned. That's the Spirit's job. That's the Spirit's job. So let's summarize it. So where does God live? He lives in temples and he lives in the sky and in temples and in priests and kings and prophets and Christ and us. And what's he doing? Well, he's teaching and reminding and witnessing and keeping us in line with what Christ is up to and exposing and affirming and giving hope. He's very busy. Very busy. This is what Jesus says in John 14. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I've been doing and they will do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. So evidently, Jesus knew that the new revelation on the Holy Spirit was going to enable greater things to be done. The question is how. Let me illustrate this. Can I borrow this for a second? This changed everything. When when I was a kid, um, the rule was when I was a child that I had to be in by the streetlights. So the streetlights had night sensors on them. And when the, when, so the, 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 instead of arguing with my parents about when actually nighttime was, my, my parents said, here's how you know nighttime is. When, when the streetlights come on, that means the streetlights thinks it's nighttime. And so you have to be inside by the time the streetlight comes on. And, and, and if you remember being a kid in that era, um, you'd be lost playing some game somewhere. Because back then, we didn't have video games and internet and things like that. Heck, we had, you know... Three channels, right? And so uh, this is when I was a small child. But we, that's that's about the way it was. And so and so you you um, you'd be lost in your game, and then someone remember the first person that would notice the street light. They'd be going street light, and then we'd all run because we didn't want to get a beating for being you know <laughs> street light. And you, your game's over. You're running into that. You're diving for the front door because your dad's standing there with a belt. You know, like street light, street light. Right? And and I remember when I was a kid. At 6 o'clock, and you guys will know this, at 6 o'clock at night, and maybe it's the same here about the time, at 6 o'clock at night on all three channels was something very important to my father. The what now? The news. Do you know how many times I was told to shut my mouth? Because, you know, I come in and want to tell my dad about my day. Dad, you want to hear what happened to me today? Not now! News is on! If we don't watch the news, we'll have no way of knowing what happened today. If I miss the news, I'll have to wait till the morning paper, and that will be a disaster. I will lay in my bed, and I will wonder what happened today. (laughs) Son, in 25 minutes, I will listen all about your day. But for right now, be quiet. Why? The news is on, and there is no way of knowing what happened in this world if you missed the 6 o'clock news. The thing is, that was true in those days. Why? Because in America... Only three entities had something called a satellite uplink. Only three entities had broadcast power. 
Only three entities had, had the power and the technology to tell you what's going on today. And when there's only three entities, you had better listen when they're on. Because if you don't listen when they're on, see, during the night, the newspapers would write papers about what the 11 o'clock news said so that people who couldn't stay up to 11 to find out what happened, they could find out at 7 a.m. when they woke up and read their paper. Why? Because there was only three entities with broadcast power. But now, how many people have broadcast power? Everyone. Everyone's got a cell phone. Every cell phone has a camera. In today's world, we're not limited to three entities from 6 to 6.30. No one gets nervous when they don't get to watch the news at 6. Why? Because on your way to wherever you're going, you can check the news right there. Why? Because everybody's got a cell phone. And every cell phone has broadcast power. Now, here's my, here, and here was the fear of the first century. If we give the Holy Spirit to everybody, then the priest will lose their job. But is that what happened? No, we still need pastors and priests and teachers. Why? Did, did, just because everybody has a cell phone today, does that mean that the news went away? No. Are there more or less news stations today than there were 25, 30 years ago? Way more. So the news got more popular. You would think that the more people that had cell phones, the less popular the news would be. But turns out it got more popular. But does anybody in here, do, do, do any of you watch the news at night to find out what happened? No, you already know what happened. You're checking your Facebook news feeds. You've got Twitter. You've got, I mean, it's all, the news cycle is currently 17 seconds. 17 seconds, it could be all around the world. Why? Because everybody's got a cell phone. And every cell phone's got a camera. So what does the news do? No successful news station reports the news anymore. They don't. Why? Because they don't have to. What do successful news stations do? They bring experts on to talk about what you learned all day. They had to shift. Why? Because everybody's got a cell phone. And every cell phone has a camera. Everybody has broadcasting power now. And this is the revolution Jesus was bringing to the world. Before Jesus, it was only on prophets, priests, kings, and in one temple. Jesus comes along and he hands everybody a cell phone with broadcast power. And he says, here's what we're going to do. We're going to give everybody a cell phone. And everybody's going to have the light of the Spirit. Everybody's going to have the power of the Spirit. And because of that, we'll be able to do greater things than I could ever dream of doing in a system where there was only one, two, or three. It's an old... Next slide, sorry. It's the old system. Next slide. It's the old system versus... The new. In the old system, there was only three broadcasts. Now, there's infinite. So I want to leave us tonight with a few questions about the Holy Spirit for us to wrestle with. Because it doesn't do any good to understand the history of the anointing if we don't know what to do with it, with that. And I want to start us on a journey that maybe with some questions that maybe start discussions that we haven't thought of yet. Uh, next slide. What would happen if Christians actually believed this? What happens when we don't believe it? It's obvious when we don't believe it. When people come into our churches and they depend on the pastor to do everything. The pastor says, we need more children's workers. Well, you're the pastor. 
But we need more greeters at the door. Yeah, but you're the pastor. We need some more resources. We got some things going on. Yeah, but you're the pastor. When people don't believe it, what they do is they absolve themselves from participating with the risen Christ to fix the world, and they put it all on the elite people again. And trust me, no pastor, the pastor would have to be awfully arrogant to want that system back. The pastor would much rather every person believe that the Holy Spirit resides in them and fully agree to participate. The question is, are you going to position yourself in opposition to the infinite possibilities God now has, given that everyone has a cell phone? Or are you going to put yourself in participation with the infinite possibilities the Spirit of God has for your life? Two, what is the difference between being in the presence of God and the presence of God being in us? And here's the difference. I I, I could have shown a video about this, but you'll get what I'm saying. Have you ever watched a talent show on television? I'll tell you about one I saw recently. It was one of these America's Got Talent, New Zealand's Got Talent, X Factor, whatever it is, The Voice, whatever it is. And um, in this particular situation, there was an 11-year-old girl singing an Adele song called Rolling in the Deep. Adele's evidently very famous. And the song is very famous. I I didn't know who sung it, but when it was coming out, I remember, I know I've heard it, you know. There's a fire rolling in that, you know. We could have had it all, right? All right, so, which is going to illustrate my point in a second. So this 11-year-old, I could tell you this, this 11-year-old, the judge said, if I closed my eyes, it was like Adele was on the stage. And here's my point. In today's age, how hard is it to be in the presence of Adele? Not hard. Every single person in here at any poem, at any moment can be in the presence of Adele in one click. Here's all you do. You go to the iTunes store. You go to YouTube. You go, you find Adele. You could do it in less than six. Anybody that is any kind of technological savvy at all with a cell phone, with a data service, and, and an earplug thing. To, to, you, you could be in the presence of Adele like that at any moment. Your favorite band, like that, at any moment. At any moment, you could be in the presence of your favorite speaker, like that. You just get their CD, their MP3, whatever. It has instantly, you could carry a thousand songs around in your pocket. You could do it like that. It is one thing to be in the presence of God. It is an entirely different thing to be so practiced with the Spirit of God that the presence of God is in you. It's a big difference. I can be in the presence of Adele, but I hardly have the presence of Adele living in me. We had that 11-year-old girl who was singing, and then I tried to sing the same song. The difference would be obvious. <laughs> Why? Why? Because I can be in the presence of Adele. So can you. There's not a dime's difference between me and you for getting into the presence of Adele. But there's a huge difference between how much of the presence of Adele is in us. Let's come back to God. There's not a dime's difference between me and you about our access to the presence of God. Anytime, any place you want to access the presence of God, you can access the presence of God. The difference is to what degree the presence of God will be in us. And that takes practice and discipline and imagination and building it in our spirit and dropping down into our center and increasing our awareness around God. That takes that. In that new series in the back, I talk a lot about how to do that. But this is sort of the introduction to that. Next Next slide. What, oh, no, sorry, go back. I'm sorry, I, I missed a question. What does it take to have the presence being made perfect in us? So the question is, is that if there's no difference between you and me in terms of our access to the anointing, then why is it that some people 
operate in more of the anointing than others? Well, because there's a difference between being in the presence of something and the presence of something being in us. Two different things. And the Bible, in like five different places in the New Testament, the New Testament writers proclaim that when you choose to live a life of love to someone who doesn't deserve it, then the presence of God is being made perfect in us. That the first step in operating in the Spirit is making a choice to live a life of love for our brothers and sisters. Who, who You don't treat people as they deserve. You treat people how they're worth. Let, let, let's say it this way. Next slide. The Spirit is in you to revive you. Are you willing to come alive and participate with God? Where have you lived with the lie that today is just a repeat of yesterday and you're just sort of going through the motions and I'm telling you, Jesus said the Spirit of God is here to revive you, to remind you of the truth that there's something big going on and you're being invited to participate with the infinite possibilities God is doing or you can resist it. Let's say it this way. Uh, No, no, back up, back up. The The Spirit is in you to teach you Where are you ignoring your conscience? Today, where have you made a decision or fixing to make a decision today that you will regret tomorrow? And the Holy Spirit's going, you're righteous, you're righteous, you're righteous. Righteous people don't do that. You're righteous. Righteous people don't do that. That will hurt you. That will hurt you. It's a still small voice bearing witness to the life that Jesus has for you. You've embraced the life of Christ. Christ's life isn't this. This is not what righteous people do. This will hurt you. And it's called your conscience. Is there any, if the Spirit of God was given to you by Jesus to teach you, where are you ignoring your conscience today? And if you're honest, we all have a story about that time that we ignored our conscience and later we regretted it. Proverbs 22.3 says it this way, a wise person sees danger on the road ahead and shifts roads, but a fool keeps going just because it's easier and he suffers. Next slide. The Spirit is in you to disrupt boring religious form. Will you let God replace it with life? Where are you just going through the motions, doing the rituals? Where have you bought into the fact that it's only, it must be only for special people? Uh-uh. That's not the life Christ talked about. Let's say it this way. Seven, the Spirit is in you to give hope for your future. Is there any place that you're filled with despair and loss? Is there any place you've spent just a little bit too much time on the internet listening to negative people? God's not judging the world. He's not. If he was going to judge the world, matter of fact, the one thing you see in Scripture is a promise never to destroy the world again. What you see in Scripture is the exact opposite. You see a God that loved the world enough to enter into the broken picture, no matter how broken it was, and be determined to fix it. Eight, the Spirit is in you to journey through suffering. Are you suffering? Where do you need the Spirit of God to journey with you today? I love the way Jonah puts it. He says, you're a compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love God, a God who repents from evil. We serve a God who repents from evil, which leads to all kinds of questions like, if he can repent from evil, does that mean he's capable of evil? And if God's not capable of evil, why does he need to repent from evil? Does God ever attend a church service and respond to his own altar call? (laughs) What does it mean to repent from evil? What do you do? What, what does that mean? Why, does God, why is God repenting? If you walked into a church service and saw God on his knees repenting, what would you think? Why is God repenting of evil? I love the way the rabbis teach it. The rabbis teach it as divine mirroring. 
They say, we don't serve a God who sits high and mighty. But when you're willing to go through the suffering of repentance, we serve a God who will get on his knees and repent with you. When you're willing to repent, he repents with you. Because we don't serve a God willing to sit high and mighty on a throne to watch our suffering. We serve a God who's humble enough to put on flesh and crawl up on a cross and suffer with the world. If, you, if, you've ever, if you're ever in the land of suffering and you're asking, why am I suffering? You're asking the wrong question. God's not going to tell you why you're suffering. What you can take heart in is this, is that you serve a God who has the heart to suffer with you. You'll never suffer alone. That's the Holy Spirit. Let's say it this way, number nine. Are we doing greater things than he? And if not, why not? Jesus' vision was, I could do it all myself or I can leave and give the Holy Spirit to a whole lot of people. If I give them to a whole lot of people, then we'll do a whole lot better things. All right, here's my last question. Are you participating with what the Holy Spirit's doing in the world or are you resisting the infinite possibilities he has for us? Please, 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 I urge you to submit your life to the risen Christ. Be convinced that you're righteous and live with the hope that this world's going a better place and you are that hope. I bless you to be people who know that you're carrying the Spirit of God. It's not just for special people. You're salt. You're light. Normal, everyday, average people like me and you. God wants to change the world with us. I hope you've enjoyed these two nights together. I've enjoyed going through about four different topics and trying trying to bring it down right here to Hastings. And I hope you've been challenged, inspired, informed, and moved. Um, I'd like to encourage you to make sure you're here Sunday. I'm going to do a brand new message I've done that um, I I promise you, you will not regret coming Sunday. So I can't wait to spend Sunday with you and challenge us about more about what it means to be a Christ follower today. Until I see you then, grace and peace. God bless.